Hi, I'm Robert Borton, CEO of Classical Conversations. Our most precious commodity is time. No one has ever lied on their deathbed wishing they had spent more time making money. They all wish they had spent more time creating a legacy. Our modern education system steals that legacy, steals that time from our children. That's why I'm passionate about homeschooling. That's why at Classical Conversations we want to give you more time to create that legacy, follow your passions, and glorify God. Visit classicalconversations.com for more information. So, Rod, um, welcome to Cross Politics. It, welcome to Cross Politics. We kind of already did. I think I think Nox is going to splice my intro oh, in. Yeah. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, I'm always, I'm that's recording what, what, all the time. Nox so. is always recording. <laughs> um, 2020, and you write a book, Live, Live not, not, not by, by Lies. And it seems like 2020 was just one big overstep of government authority. Lots of lies interwoven with truths. Um, it wasn't an accident that you wrote <laughs> "Live Not by Lies." It was providential. Oh, <laughs> I know. I'm that, so sounds, that sounds Calvinist. It does. I know. I know. <laughs> well, yeah. your, your listeners should know. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian, but as we talked about before we started, you know, whatever our theological differences, and they are serious. When the secret police come for us as Christians, we're all going to be in the same cell together. So we uh-huh. might as well get to know each other now. Cell yeah. block four. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, um, yeah, it was providential. I finished the manuscript for the book in March of 2020, just wow. before COVID really broke. Right. That's, when, that's when it hit. That's, that's when, when it, it shut hit. down. Yeah, that's when it hit. And uh, turned it in. I couldn't change anything after that. And then, of course, George Floyd happened after it was too late to change. Right. But between the time I finished all this in the spring of 2020 and the time the book came out in September, the world was very different yep. in, in ways that I had, by the grace of God, anticipated. But it wasn't just me that anticipated it. Six or seven years ago, I started hearing from people who were born and raised and lived in the communist world and escaped, who came to America, who were saying the things that are happening in America right now with cancel culture, political correctness and yep, all that. Yep. What a quaint term, by the way, political correctness <laughs> after what we've seen. Right. But all of this stuff reminded them of what they left behind under communism. Yeah. When I first heard them saying that, I thought, you know, this kind of extreme. My mom is an elderly widow, and she watches a lot of cable news and gets really scared. This can't be as bad as they're saying. Right. But the more I listened to them, the more I talked to them, the more I realized they were seeing something that the rest of us couldn't. And one of the reasons we couldn't see it is because we all think, well, this is America. It can't happen here. Right. Well, guess what? It is happening here. When I finally heard from enough of them, I wrote a book proposal and uh, I think the editor was even skeptical of, of it, the editor in New York. But she said, well, we'll go ahead and try this. Well, the book has become a big bestseller because people in this country, uh, Christians, are waking up to what is actually happening. And they want to know what's going on. How can we protect ourselves? Wow. What, what do you think was the most central lie in 2020? Um, you know, it's just uh, to me, it's just hilarious that you write this book, Live Not By Lies. And then 2020 happens. And. Obviously, you weren't even able to comment about COVID. You weren't able to comment about some of the immediacy of what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you hit it dead on the head still. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think for me, I mean, COVID, the way COVID was handled was definitely problematic. But for me, I think the whole uh, fallout from the George Floyd uh, I was going to ask killing, you about that. Why is yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think that was the biggest thing because suddenly we went from where all these these institutions, every institution in our society suddenly became anti-racist in the Ibram Kendi sense. 
You know, right. I think, and I, I'm sure we all agree, that racism is evil. Nah, but that's I not like what, it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Really good. Been good for business. Yeah. Down here in Louisiana? How is it down here? I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> no. um, but, but what was going on with, with, with these guys is they were using the people being outraged over what happened to George Floyd for a totalitarian power grab. Suddenly, if you disagreed with any of that, then you were a racist too, or you were a bigot. And LGBT accelerated massively. It seems that the the George Floyd incident managed to somehow throw fuel on all the fire of, mm. of the progressives to come after us. And of course, COVID too came in. Everybody was scared. Uh, everybody's uh, routines were yep. disrupted. And a lot of people were like, just make us safe, make us safe. And that conditioned people to accept things that they shouldn't accept. And it's, it's striking, though. I mean, it, the other thing I, that I remember about the post-George Floyd thing was suddenly sort of um, the, the naked hypocrisy that was revealed, where you have um, NBA nobody, and China. Nobody, <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, but, exactly. But I'm like, but nobody can go outside. Nobody can go outside. You know, your businesses are shut down. You can't go to church because there's this disease right and then as soon as the george floyd thing happens you got blm riots yeah. all over the place smashing businesses crowds, police crowds who are not social distancing right, you know, right much less wearing masks or whatever and um and suddenly that's okay that's understandable yeah. and of course you got you know we had uh Chaz or Chop in, in Seattle, Seattle. Yep. Uh, five yep. hours from us. You know, where where police stations getting you know burned down and you know, all this stuff. I mean, that was like part of it was like the naked hypocrisy, and then like it has it. Then you you think surely now everyone will see what's going on. No, that's the thing. You yeah. ke- I keep saying that. Well, all right, this will finally be the thing that does it, and it does <laughs> it. It keeps going, <laughs> and, and I think this is one of the the. This is a nature of the moment that we're in. As a lot of people like me, I'm older than you guys. I'm 54, and I've, I'm part of the conservative generation that thought, well, if we just show the liberals how <laughs> how hip- hypocritical they are, then yes. they will see. And right. yes. you just told them an ultra, ultrasound. Yeah. Right. But, right. Yeah. This right. is a baby. Yeah. No, <laughs> that doesn't matter anymore. None right. of it matters. As we're talking right now, there's this big controversy going on in Loudoun County, Virginia. Right. Um, yeah. Where yeah. Uh, the, a transgendered male uh, raped. I think today was found guilty raped a girl in a school classroom the local media is barely covering it right nationally now somebody put on twitter today they said what would have happened if this kid the rapist instead of wearing a skirt when he did his rape if he had been wearing a maga hat how would that have changed oh, the national media's yep. coverage yeah and that's it it would be wall to wall exactly yep. can I, can I, I want to step back for a little bit and kind they of would talk. have blamed on trump too yeah. <laughs> right when, when the whole back in march when this whole COVID thing broke I had been paying attention to a little kind of history. I feel like right now, and I want to ask you about this too, I feel like we're back in the 60s again, maybe before that, but we lost a lot in the 60s. You lose JFK, you lose Martin Luther King, you lose Malcolm X. You know, I can't remember, there's a few other guys too that were huge in the civil rights movement, uh, huge American culture, and you have just death reigning in this 10 years era. But I can kind of see what was coming with COVID because of paying attention to kind of that history a little bit. But no one has seemed to care. <laughs> So the soft totalitarianism that's kind of coming in, could you kind of explain that a little bit, yeah, what it yeah. is, and then why is it that no one seems to be aware that that's what's happening? Right. Because if it just came in like dictate, which I thought that, it doesn't seem like they would care about that either, though. Right, right. No, we've been demoralized as a people. Um, I call what's happening soft totalitarianism because it is totalitarianism, 
but it's not George Orwell, it's not Stalin. And right. a lot of us, when you say totalitarianism, that's what people immediately think right, about. Right. The gulags, secret police, the KGB, all of the right. stuff that's part of the Cold War, and from George Orwell's 1984. Well, we don't have that, so people are like, what do you mean totalitarianism? Well, here's the point. From a political theory point of view, totalitarianism as a society or as a polity where um, all things are politicized, where there's only one political uh, ideology allowed and everything in life is politicized, you can have that theoretically even in a liberal democracy, as we are now seeing. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and it's coming also into us through compassion. So this totalitarianism <laughs> we have now, right. it's, it's soft. It's like, well, you don't want to hurt people's feelings. You want to be thoughtful and blah, blah, blah. And therefore, we're going to cancel you. Right. So Dave, you're fired. Right, you're right, fired. Right. Dave Chappelle, you can't say. Yeah. And um, so, but, so this, is, this is part of the totalitarianism. But I, one of the things I try to help people understand is that uh, we on the right, we always thought about big business as being, if not on our side necessarily, at least neutral. And they were the ones that we posited against big government, yep. right? That's yep. so old school, it doesn't happen anymore, it doesn't matter anymore. Big business has gone woke. Woke capitalism right. is a huge thing. And so now, and the big turning point here was 2015 in the state of Indiana, when uh, the state of Indiana passed a state version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right, RIFRA. RIFRA, right. right. And uh, when that happened, suddenly, first time ever, all these big businesses, Salesforce, Apple Computer, Eli Lilly, all of them, came down like a ton of bricks from the state of Indiana and said, if you don't get rid of this bigoted law, there will be that. economic consequences. Was that when Mike Pence was, was he the governor? He was the governor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and they meant it, and so the state backed down. Right. That was the first time that big business had gotten involved in the culture war like that. And it was a Waterloo for people like us. Wow. And so that, that's oh, part of the that. soft totalitarianism, yeah, right? That yeah. it's not coming from the government. But you don't need the government when you have big business, you have uh, universities, the media, law, medicine, even the military, the CIA, singing from the same script. Right. So we're, so we're, in one sense or another, we're kind of bringing, we're Trojan horsing this totalitarianism in. Because we're the ones supporting Apple, we're the ones supporting Microsoft, we're supporting yeah, supporting. Yeah, yeah. So then we're it's um, at all Huxley's, Huxley's book, right? Exactly. Well, that's just it. it. The totalitarianism we're dealing with is not Orwell. It's Huxley. Huxley in Brave New World wrote this book about a totalitarian state that controlled everybody not through pain and terror and fear, but by manipulating their comfort and their status. Mm. Right. Nobody wants to lose status now. Right. We were That's right. Yeah, we That's were talking right. before the, the we started filming about how in Southern California a few years ago, after the Obergefell ruling passed with the Supreme Court um, and gay marriage, uh, the LGBT caucus of the California legislature tried to get a law passed that would forbid state grants from going to students who are going to use them at so-called bigot colleges, i.e. <laughs> religious colleges. No. Religious colleges wow. that followed biblical teaching on LGBT. Right. Well, a friend of- Soji, that became Soji legislation later. Or uh, I think it may, it may yeah, have yeah. done this later. This was back in like 2016. Okay. Well, a friend of mine is a le uh, as an administrator, senior administrator at a Christian college out there. He told me that a group of them went around to try to churches in California to try to drum up support. They went down to Orange County, which is, you know, conservative, white right. evangelical central, right. thinking this is where our people are. 
they said not a single pastor would get behind them because they were all terrified of being called bigots. The only reason the law got defeated was because black Pentecostal pastors from South Central LA and the Hispanic Catholic Archbishop of Los Angeles wow. stood up. The same Come thing on, with now. Proposition 8. That's exactly what happened yeah. on Proposition right. 8 in California. Well, because you saw what, what, what uh, what's the Mozilla Foxfire the CEO Firefox. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who, yeah. who got, you know, got axed because he gave a, li- a, a little thousand dollars to uh-huh. it. Yeah, we, he's a Catholic. Um, the, uh, a friend of ours, Joseph Backholm, worked in Washington State for a number of years, 10 years I think, um, and he told us that um, his experience with so many um, laws and elections, if if Christians would just show up, it would have changed the landscape of Washington State. If they just showed up to vote, yeah. And and um, and he had a number of examples where he said, like, you know, the vote was, you know, a, you know, thousand, a few thousand people. If, if the Christians had shown up, and his job was to go around to churches in particular, trying to just tell them here are the issues, not tell them exactly how to vote, but you know here are the issues, and here's what you know come you know come out to vote. There'll be a Christian in the voting and, box. And, yeah. and he said he said overwhelmingly, it was um, immigrant churches yeah. Yeah. and minority churches that would say, yeah, come on in, tell us you know tell us about the issues, and would take the literature and were supportive and encouraging. And he said it was the white, Anglo, Europe, you know, um, American evangelical churches. That were like, no, we don't do politics. Status. They want to protect their status, their respectability. And this is going to be the death of us. Uh, this soft totalitarianism comes in. Um, I, you know, when I was in Central Europe uh, doing my research for Live Not By Lies, I talked to this woman, Camilla Bendova. She's a Czech Catholic. She and her late husband, Václav, were the only Christians in the inner circle of Václav Havel, the leading Czech uh, anti-totalitarian dissidents. And I remember asking her, because I knew she and her husband were very morally strict. I said, how is it that you worked with uh, Havel and these others who were against the government, but they were all bohemians, no pun intended. They like <laughs> slept around a lot. They were not morally on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And she said it was actually easy because under conditions of totalitarianism, the rarest quality you can ever find is courage. And these people, oh, whatever man. their moral That's lives right. were like, they were brave enough to stand up against the government. Wow. Whereas she said almost all the Christians kept their head down, wow. heads down, and just conformed because they didn't want trouble. Wow. This is something we've got to learn today. Yep. You know, we have got to learn to be brave. And when we see others who want to be brave, whether we agree with them theologically, politically, whatever, you got to stand by them. That's why I've welcomed the uh, support for my book from Barry Weiss. Oh, yeah. She's a yeah. secular Jewish lesbian, yeah. uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, yeah. secular yeah. leftists, but they've been brave enough to stand up to wokeness. And yeah. those people, they're not going to agree with us on faith or a lot of other James things. James Lindsay, too, right? James, James Lindsay, another yeah. one yeah. out there. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, so, man, there's so much I want to ask you, but one of the things that you talked about was um, the fact that totalitarianism, when it comes, one of the first places it starts to attack is the church. And why, I guess kind of the question is, why is the church such a threat? Because it doesn't seem like it is at all right now. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> but it's still, uh, that's one of the first places. Like, yeah. Even when COVID came in, I mean, I mean. Church all was the not place, essential yeah, immediately. It, yeah. That right. was immediately one of the places that it goes after. The social justice movement is running rampant in destroying the church right now. It is. Look at the SBC. I mean, they're going through it right now. You yeah, know, so, yeah, yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about why the church, what is it that's inside of the church that becomes a problem for it at the end of the day? Well, why is it attack it first? Well, I'll tell the story about the man I dedicated the book to, a Catholic priest named Father Tomislav Kolakovich. 
he died in 95, I think it was. And I didn't even know who this man was until I went to Slovakia and started interviewing people who had been in the underground church there. And they mm -hmm. said he was the one who started it. In 1943, Father Kolakovic was working in Zagreb in Croatia, his native country, doing anti-Nazi work on behalf of the church. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him, so he sneaked out of the country, went to Slovakia, his mother's homeland, and started teaching in the Catholic University there. He told his students, um, he said, good news is the Germans are gonna lose this war. The bad news is that when it's over with, the Soviets are gonna be ruling this country, and the first ones are gonna come after is the church, because wow. back then, the church, especially the Catholic church, was strongly anti-communist. So what he started to do, Kolakovich, is bringing together small groups of Christians, dedicated Christians, to pray, to study scripture, and to make plans for how they were going to resist when the persecution came. Within two years, these groups spread all over Slovakia. Every wow. town of any size had one. The Catholic bishops of that country chastised him and said, Father, stop scaring people. You know, it's never, wow. this is not going to happen here. Wow. But Kolakovich knew it would because he had studied, when he was in seminary, he studied to be a missionary to the Soviet Union. He knew the communist mindset. So sure enough, when the Iron Curtain fell over that country, the first thing they did was come after the church wow. because the communists knew that would be the strongest resistance against them. The network that Father Kolakovich set up became the backbone for the underground church and the only significant resistance to communism for the next 40 years. Wow. So flash forward to where we are now. Yeah. Most churches in our country are going to conform because most Christians, I believe, in our country have come to see church as just an add-on to the good life. You know, mm. we're prosperous, yeah. we're, yeah. Yeah. you know, we're respectable. That's we go a little to Jesus on top. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think that we as Christians have to prepare ourselves for the fact that when we are, if we are ever hauled off to the gulag, most Christians in our towns are going to turn their heads because they don't want trouble. Well, and we already saw this maybe on many display with like masking mandates and and vaccine stuff. I mean, we've already seen a little bit of this where Christians have been like, well, just just go go along, just get along. They, you know, maybe it'll go back to normal. Just you know, don't resist. And and for the handful of people that are standing up, even with the COVID stuff, saying. Guys, what are you doing? Like, what happened to natural immunity? <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what was? It has, yeah, yeah. What, what, where are these mandates? And they're like, oh, oh, guys, 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 just, just be good, just be not like. And, and there's a lot of Christians doing that. I mean, if they'll do that with COVID, then surely they'll do that with anything. Well, look at this too. The whole idea of employment. Uh, now, you have to be so careful about what you write online, what you say, yep. uh, because human resources departments are looking. Right. Yep. You know, I had a, a doctor tell me, this doctor was um, born and raised in the Soviet Union, his family emigrated, he became a Christian in, in America. He's now a senior physician at a major American hospital. He only talked to me if I promised not to use his name. Yeah. But he said that he is extremely careful what he says on social media because he knows the HR department at the hospital is scanning everybody's social media, looking for signs yep. of wrong think. Yep. And he said Wrong that at thing. his hospital, this was two years ago, I think it's probably spread, he said at his hospital, transgenderism was the only medical condition in which doctors were not free to treat the patients as they saw fit. They had a directive from on high saying if somebody shows up Whoa. to uh, wanting hormones or sex change, you give it to them no matter what your judgment is. Wow. This is insane. Yes. And, uh, and he said that having grown up in the Soviet Union, 
it prepared him for having to live under this. Now, I wonder why this man is still willing to to go along with this. Maybe yeah. now he's not, but, but right. this is how it happens right. because you've suddenly you've got a mortgage. Yep. You know, uh -huh. life's yep. good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a doctor. T one doctor told me that he did not want his children to go into medicine. He's been very successful. They didn't want his kids to go into medicine because he could see where things were going. He worked at the Mayo Clinic when I talked to him. Right. Uh, he does not there anymore, but he said, I can see where things are going, that doctors are going to be forced by law at, to, in order to keep their license or by licensing yep. to do transgender treatment and to do abortions. Right. He said, I don't want my oh. kids to come out of medical school with $400,000 in med, med school debt, then have what you can't discharge in bankruptcy, right. then have to make that decision. Right. But this is the way the church has to start thinking. We have yeah, to prepare yeah. ourselves. Okay, yeah. so let me just stay there with it because I want to get to the title of the book. I love the way how you talked about Live Not By Lies. The way you talked about that and defined it was the best that I've heard. And I want to talk, I want you to do that again, what that means, Alexander, social media, yeah, yeah. the whole definition of that. But before we get there, how far are we out before we're going to the gulags? Because, you know, if you say it's coming, <laughs> I just want to get a time and date so I can know. But how far are we out? I mean, seriously. You know, to be honest, I actually don't expect gulags because they're not going to need them. I think we're going to have a social credit system like Ooh. China does where you will not be able to buy or sell if you are run afoul of the social credit okay, system. Okay, Mark of the Beast. I got it. Okay, you, already, okay. you already can't get kidney it. transplants without getting the vaccine. You can't get yeah. any you, sort you, of you transplant. Already, yeah. 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 Right. Heart. I mean, it's already happening. So this is like the – was it Was it the uh, prime minister of Australia or New Zealand who – like some, the, some, the press that says, so now we have a two – a class system, oh, yeah, a two-tier yeah. system. Like, that's right. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, that's what we're, that's New right. New Zealand. It's New Zealand. The, the, the prime minister, she's like, yeah, we have a two-class system, a two-tier system yeah, now. Yeah. And, and those who are vaccinated. She's proud of it. And yeah, she was just, she just well, admitted it. I can it. tell you guys, in case you don't know, it doesn't work well. <laughs> just so you know, it, it doesn't work well at You've all. You've been there before? I'm just saying, my people know something about that. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, it's coming and it's going to be sold to us for safety's sake. Right. Uh, I remember back in the year 2000, I was working at National Review Magazine, but I did a piece. No, no, I was at, at the New York Post Center. I did a piece for the Weekly Standard Magazine about something that GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, was doing to get into schools. Oh, wow. They were, um, they were going into local schools. God, that seems like forever ago. They're going into local schools saying that we're going to fight bullying. You know, we want, we need to bring our programs in because kids are getting bullied. Well, nobody can be in favor of bullying. None right. of us are sure, right. sure, right. You know how you fight bullying? Punish the bullies. Yeah. Say no bully. Right. But they were using this as a false flag to go in yeah. and, and bring in LGBT propaganda to that's schools. Right. And right. it was incredibly yeah. effective, as, as we have right. seen. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, it's going to continue to be this way. This is how this totalitarianism the soft totalitarianism takes place. It's like, we just want to make things safe. Right. Safe and comfortable and not hostile and inclusive and diverse and all that. Therefore, you bigot Christian, you right. can't come here. So it, it, so it seems like like that's one of the first places where we're being lied to. Like when, yeah. when, when, you, when you say, you know, so I agree. I, I think that opening salvo on what live not by lies means is incredibly helpful. But it struck me that it seems like we've actually probably been believing lies for, for a while. Yeah. Back to things like that, where, where you know, LGBT person says, no, 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 all, I'm, all I want to do is, I don't want to indoctrinate your kids. All I want to do is end just bullying. Safety, just, just yeah, safety, safety and, and against bullying. And, and it, like, Christians have to call BS on that. 
in a, in a sense, which is hard to do because then you look like you're in, in favor of bullying. Right, right. <laughs> and the media will paint you as yeah. that. And, and then you're going to be a racist and you're going to be a bigot and you don't care about abuse and you don't, I mean, all the things. Well, that's all the a, things. That's a, have you, after the ball, before, yeah, I think it's called after the ball. Yeah. It I mean, was, yeah. um, Jamming, conversion. Yeah, desensitized, um, jam, and convert. During the time of the yeah. 90s, the homosexual movement was really losing their way with the HIV. And so I can't remember that Kirk and somebody, Russell, I believe, wrote a book called After the Ball. And their play was to desensitize, which is propaganda everywhere. And then you take that propaganda and then you, you jam it. So then you take a homosexual black guy. You can't hate black people. And you make him homosexual and you put him in the NBA. So you cheer for him. And then you find out he's gay, and you kind of have to, ah, uh, I can't you're come jammed. against him, so now you're jammed, right? So you can't do anything about it. And then after that, once you're jammed, now you bring on the conversion. You have to support it, Cheered but then on. the end of that is you actually have to become one of us, right? And so that's kind of the same play that yeah. they're right now with the, yeah. with the schools, right? It's like, hey, bullying is everywhere. Eh, there's bullies everywhere. Who's going to fix it? I know. The LGBTQ knows what it's like to be bullied. We'll come in and fix it. Right. <laughs> we'll be the judges of it, right? And so and now they're the bullies. And now they're the bullies. So, so how, how do you recognize the lies? Or, or, I mean, if you stand up against the lies at the early stage, you will look like a crazy person. Yeah, you will. You will, you will look like an extremist. You'll look like Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson and I are not exactly best friends. Uh, <laughs> what? I, I, just, you I know. guys could be, I just, though. I just you thought just you might understand it. that now. I know, I know. <laughs> okay. no, but, no, but, you know, but I just mean, like, you'll look like a crazy person to stand up and be like, no, you're a liar, not with my kids. And everybody yeah. will look at you and think you're insane. Yeah, and that's because people want to keep things calm, keep the system running, don't disrupt anything, don't say no, don't risk anybody's job, anybody's respectability. We're going to drive people away from this church. And it's, it's, it's cooperating with evil. You know, the, mm. um, in my book, I talk about this story that Václav Havel told in this powerful essay he wrote in the middle of the Cold War, 1977, called The Power of the Powerless. And Havel, who was not a believer, but he was an anti-communist, he talked about the power that people who have no actual political power, what power they have. And the greatest power they had, he said, was their power to say no to the lies, hmm. to live not by lies. I mean, the, yeah, the phrase yeah. comes from Solzhenitsyn, yeah. but Havel said the same thing. Okay. And uh, Havel said, imagine you're a greengrocer running a produce shop in a communist city. Everybody in the city hangs, uh, puts in their sign, uh, in their shop windows, a sign that says, Workers of the World, Unite, the communist right, slogan. Right, right. Nobody believes it, but they all put it in there so they won't have any trouble from the government. Well, one day, the greengrocer, the honest greengrocer, says, I'm sick of living by lies. I'm going to take it down. He takes it down. What happens to him? The secret police come. They arrest him. He loses his business. Suddenly, he and his family are pariahs. They lose all these privileges. People don't want to be friends with them, etc. But what has he gained by that? First of all, he has the knowledge that he is a man of integrity. He's willing to live in truth. And other people seeing that if you're willing to accept suffering for the sake of the truth, that you don't have to live by the lies. And eventually that will become contagious and bring down the entire system which is built on lies. Yeah. So in, this is how uh, in, a, in a system where you have no political power, you can change things, but you have to be willing to suffer 
And that, my friends, is where what I've learned from talking to the people in the communist countries, the Christians who stayed behind to resist, they said that is the key that the American church has to learn, mm. how to suffer. Heard that Now, too. what is our sign, you know, our, our Workers United sign? Um, the, the rainbow. The rainbow flag. Ooh, bars. <laughs> we, so, what, what was the lie there that the church believed? The light, that in order to be compassionate, we have to affirm LGBT. Mm-hmm. And that, that seems to be the main lie. I mean, look right now what's happening as we're talking. I don't know when this is going to go out, but Dave Chappelle is under a yep. lot of trouble, a black comedian under a lot of trouble. He's but, winning. What? He's winning. He's yeah. doing comedy shows with Joe Rogan now. <laughs> okay, all right. But, but here's the thing. He, Dave Chappelle, you know, he did this, uh, this Netflix special where he said that a trans woman is not a real woman right you know, yeah. only biological women are women and uh they tried to cancel him netflix is standing by him but Chappelle said just yesterday he said my film that i'm making it's been turned down by film festivals all over the country wow but, and that shows you something where things are in the hierarchy of oppression wow. if the nation's number one black comedian <laughs> has to worry about his career because he's got on the wrong side of transgenders yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he should go after them as all racist. Uh, he should turn the narrative on them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I always knew. Real like, quick, you want another beer? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, October. I'll sure. take something yeah, another, else too. Yeah. Octoberfest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. One. I'm gonna do a, a cherry coke. I'm gonna act like a Baptist tonight. You want cherry coke? Yeah, cherry coke. I'm gonna do. That's um, sad. <laughs> all right, I'll take a beer too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Way to peer pressure. You know, it's funny. I remember when so. I've been watching comedy forever. And I remember when, um, what was his name, Miller, black comedian, did a joke about homosexuality and kind of how, just how dirty it was. And I remember everybody in the audience booing him. And it was a majority white audience. And I'm thinking, like, it was actually a funny joke. It was just a funny joke. But everybody booed him. And that was a moment when I realized that the minority culture wasn't black people anymore. Like, whatever social status, whatever a black person in America, this is like in the early 2000s, can't make a joke about homosexuality, you're not the protected group anymore. There's another group other than you. And I started seeing that happen then. And what Dave Chappelle did is really weird. He was able to get Netflix to defend him. I don't yeah. know how long it's going to last. Well, they invested a lot of money in him. But, but I hope that they will defend it because, because here's the thing that, that a lot of people don't realize. Some people like to say, oh, well... You know, money's the only thing that matters. The, the Hollywood will stand by anybody as long as they can make money at it. No. There, a lot of these people in who are the elites who run media companies, they're much more sensitive to what their friends think, their social friends yeah. think. Than, and we realize, I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago when I was working in newspapers, I was at a, a meeting where there were a lot of top newspaper people there. And I, yeah. I was speaking to one publisher of a paper that was in a, a published newspaper in a conservative big city. And his paper had gone all in for LGBT. And I mentioned to him, I said, you know, everybody's circulation is falling. This was in the first decade of 2000s. Everybody's circulation is falling. You ha- you're in a conservative city. Why are you antagonizing your readers with this? And he said, well, he was very indignant. He said, well, if people are bigots, we don't need them as readers. Now, I'm, I knew the finances of this guy's newspaper because I followed the industry. Yeah. He, he couldn't afford to lose a single reader, but he was quite passionate. He was ready to lose readers who were mad at them for being crusading LGBT. So 
that told me that this is how it works. It's a religion. It's, it's, re, it's a religion. It's yeah. social pressure. As long as the people in his inner circle will pat him on the back at the country club, he doesn't care about the conservatives or the Christians who were turning their back on him. They'll still make their money. I watched Nike go all in on Colin Kaepernick and blew my mind because everybody was saying, oh, Nike is just about to go broke. I'm not too convinced that you go woke, you go broke. I don't. I don't think that that's a reality, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry to say it. I think you're right. I, uh, I just don't. I Watch Nike make the – they made the jump to Colin Kaepernick when it wasn't popular, right? And they jumped all in, gave him $50 million, and changed their whole branding. And then you get the NFL coming right after that. Then you get – I mean, because they're – look, the, Nike put pressure on the NFL because they got branding with them. Yeah, yeah. And so now the NFL's got they you get baseball because Nike's connected to that too, and all of a sudden the whole base the whole sport branding went Kaepernick woke. Okay, well, but look though about the younger generation in this country, um, they are so woke on so many things, and this is what I think the church has got to anticipate is that right now we have some protection politically from from what's coming. Yep. But when the older people, the boomers, start to die out, that things are going to start. There we go. Start. There we go. There we go. There's your book. Uh, I don't want to put it up here in front of the. Yeah, so you don't get hit by the pole. No. When, when the as the boomers start to die out, things politically are going to shift to the left. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very he's a a federal judge and a conservative. And, he told me, well, I said to him, I said, listen, I have the feeling that the ju federal judiciary is a last line of defense that yeah. social and religious conservatives are going to have against what's coming when the politics shifts over. And he said, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, Interesting. Where's, um, I was thinking about this earlier. If somebody right now is feeling the weight of this, where is a good place for them to start saying no at? Because I don't think people know, um, vote, you got voting, you got all that stuff right now, but with the pressure that's coming on them from their their jobs, from their legislators, just to go into a store yeah. to be able to eat right now, do some basic things, it's getting there. Where's the, some easy places to be like, no? Okay, look, I, I'm going to tell you quite honestly, in your own home, you've we've got to start preparing our children and ourselves mm -hmm. for doing without. You'd be amazed at the number of people, I, people I know myself, uh, conservative Christians who live with this sort of cognitive dissonance. They think that, yeah, we can, we vote right, you know, we hold all the right opinions on our heads, but the way they live sends a very different message to their kids. They'll like not go to church on Sunday because their kid is a soccer game, or they'll give their kids smartphones. That's, they don't care, or they, they don't watch what their kids watch on media. It's got to start there in the home and then build out from there. Uh, but so, this is what frustrates me about our tribe, you know, conservatives. So many of us want to believe that we can vote our way out of this. Yep. Now, yep. that's just not to say that we shouldn't vote. We should right. vote. Sure. It's sure. important, sure. but it's not even the main thing. Politics is downstream from culture. And that's if you right. surrender that's yourself right. and your kids to the culture six days a week, right. what happens on Sunday morning doesn't really matter that much. And what happens in the voting booth is not going to matter right. when right. when those kids become voters themselves. That's right. That's oh, right. wow. You Look at those. you. Whoa. <laughs> oh, look at you go. Oh, thank you, reformed man. <laughs> nice reformed man. Uh, but, you know, that is, that is what, where I think there's the intersection between the book I wrote, The Benedict Option, which you guys, whether you know it or not, in Moscow, Idaho, you're practicing a form of that. 
um, by building does a. That, does that mean we're good guys? Well, we prefer the Boniface. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and okay, but but you know what I mean. But you know, you know what I'm saying. Though? You're a strong, thick local community that right. has to be resilient right. yeah. and who knows that you're outsiders and who doesn't care. Did, did you did you follow Gabe's arrest? You got it. Were you the guy on that film? Yes. Wow. That was Gabe. So that was I blogged about that. Oh, did you? Yeah, I so, said good for you. So, that, so that was our church. That was Christ Church, and we were doing a psalm sing. Yep. At, as a as a protest against our city's mask mandate. And um, and Gabe got arrested. I, I blogged about that, and if I, memory serves, I said, I'm not on, the, on side with the Kirk on a lot of things, <laughs> but they're right here. And see, this is the kind of thing. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not flattering you falsely, but this is the kind of thing that we Christians have got to do for each other. Yeah. You know, whatever we think of each other theologically or otherwise, when we see one of us being assaulted in that way, we have yeah. got to come together. Well, and that didn't happen because I had Christian Day. Relevant magazine, like all these Christian magazines well, came all the, after they're us. They're all the woke ones. They're, they're the woke ones, too. But, and they came after us since, you know, the Romans 13 bit. The Reformed pub, I mean, like half the Reformed Christendom was, was against what we did. Yeah. And right? we were in the right. My criminal, we won my and, criminal and, and case. And it was and, completely and, legal. It turned yeah. out, like, even the code, even the order, even the order allowed for First Amendment rights to be exercised. Explicitly so, stated. So the whole arrest was completely yeah. illegal. And... Um, it's it's just it's but just it was a, but it was a victory and it was a victory nationwide for all the BS that had been going on uh, for the church needing to learn how to fight and being able to fight against the masking and the social distancing well, stuff. You, you were asking a second ago what are easy things people yeah. can do. I want to go back to something that I learned from Camilla Bendova, the, this Czech woman, yeah. whose husband Václav he died in '99, but he went to prison for four years for fighting the government. These are Christians, and. Um, she told me that that uh, they had like five or six kids. She said that their kids had to go to communist schools. They didn't have a choice. But they always made sure when the kids would come home from school, the father would sit down with the kids and talk to them about their day and tell them explicitly, these are the lies you heard. Wow. He had to prepare those kids that way. But she did something really cool. She, her role was to read to the kids. Now, she was a professor herself. And when he went to prison, you know, she was raising these kids all by herself. Wow. But she said that she always made time two, sometimes three hours a day to read to them every I, night. I remember this part. And, and yep. you say in the book, like, you said, what? No, well, I, well, I said to her, like, well, what did you read to them? And mind you, we're sitting in her apartment in Prague, 14-foot ceilings, books floor to ceiling on yeah. every wall. Yeah. So what did you read? She said, well, classic literature. I read the myths, and I read them a lot of Tolkien. I said, Tolkien? Really? Why Tolkien? She looked at me straight in the eye and said, because we knew that Mordor was real. Oh! Yeah. And there's real wisdom there because yeah. Yeah. These, these children... Oh, you're good, man. These children could not understand what communism was, but they could follow they, they Mordor. Mordor. They knew what Mordor, Mordor was. Mordor. Yeah. They knew who Sora yeah. Who's Sora. the bad guy, right? Yeah. right? And they knew that their parents' house was a center for dissidents to come by because it was around the corner from the secret police. Wow. And... Uh, Wow. People who were brought, being brought in for questioning, summoned for questioning, they would often stop by the Benda apartment for prayer and for to be built up before they went in to yeah. be interrogated. Right. Oh, wow. And right. by re, and what Camilla did was teach her children that all these people who are coming by mom and dad's house were all part of the fellowship, right. fighting. You know, so this was a way of forming those children's moral imaginations. Right. This is something that we can and must do right now. 
Uh, my kids go to a classical Christian school. I imagine y'all's kids do Ours too. Ours do too, yes. This is where it's happening right, right now. I'm thinking about connecting that dot from story um, to um, Neil Postman's book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He picks up on the Aldous Huxley exactly. thesis um, of Brave New World, which is that we're, it's, he called, you know, Neil Postman called this a few decades ago. I don't he know did, in the early was. 90s. Sure, right. um, you know, said, you know, it's not, it's not that we're going to go under the, you know, jackboot totalitarianism. It's going to be this soft totalitarianism. Um, and particularly, he was critiquing um, media. Uh, and, and, and video media, and his concern was that in 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 uh, video and visual media, um, story was being broken apart, and so images and news stories of you know so and so's murdered here, there's a fire here today, and the weather's going to be, and the score for the World Series game was this, which had a way he was concerned that it was it was um, actually breaking people's ability to think in straight lines, mm-hmm. and in particular not being able to um, uh, think critically anymore. Yeah, well, and, and, and it seems to me there's a... Sounds con- like your Facebook feed. There's a connection. Be- well, I think, I think it's only gotten worse, actually. Yeah. It's gotten Neil, much worse Neil because Post- of the internet. Yeah, because of the internet yeah. and social media. And there's TikTok. Just, you know, picture, theme, picture, theme. You know, get, dopamine you know, hit, dopamine get, hit. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and the thing that I'm going to tie it back to, Tolkien, which is, so two or three hours of reading story, mm. you begin to see the way the world really is, and yeah. you'll be able to follow an argument. But people that are raised on what Neil Postman saw as this um, this radical um, fragmentation of the world, it That's creates good, fragmented yeah. thinkers, yeah. and so they you know it's just bzz, bzz, dopamine hit, dopamine That's hit, and you can't like it's it's a, it's sort of like a cultural um, ADD, you know, where you can't like you can't keep track of what's going on, and then they're like, here, have another hit. Look, I'm the same way. I have found, I mean, I, I live online because I work online, yeah. and I have found that my ability to follow a book uh, for a long period of time has really degraded. Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, which came out, I think, in 2009, he talked about that's yeah. how the Internet is changing us. Yeah. But um, and this is such an important point for parents because a lot of times we say, don't give your kids smartphones. Um, and we think it's because you don't want her to have pornography. And that's true. You shouldn't sure. do it for that right, reason. Right. Sure. But it's not simply the content itself. It's the medium. Right. It's that fragmentation right. that right. makes it hard for people to think. And they, they begin to think that their, um, their impulses, their emotions are what's real. Right. That, that's, that's good. Yeah, cause, yeah. And that's what we are downstream of now is we've got this all, my emotions – and my feelings are the highest standard. Exactly. And this is what's behind the transgender movement. Right. Okay, right. so help me with yeah. something. Though. So, okay, keep that there. How do you then, because I'm watching this, and my conservative friends, they're just failing at this so bad. We, we really are. But how do you then have an argument with someone? Because you still have to communicate to them somehow. You, you asked this to Carl Truman. When we were talking to Carl Truman about oh, he's his, so great. About his yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you guys are talking <laughs> in two different languages, and not only that, but they can't follow... If they do speak your language, they can't follow your train of thought for that long anyway. Yeah. How do you then, my conservative friends do this, so let's say the pro-life movement. Okay, if we can show you that it's a human being, will that matter then? Absolutely. We show it's a human being, we get to that point. Nope. I'm still going to kill it. Yeah. I don't want to kill it. We'll show you all the facts that masks don't work. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, and masks will, don't work. I will work with people on that and show them all the facts. We'll go through the signs that we've had for years, since the 1919s. Um, and nothing will convince them. And it seems like we'll 
conservatives will have a rah-rah party over facts, or should I say ones and zeros, and are happy that they're having that conversation. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But yeah. it, and nothing has changed at all in the communication between the two sides. No. You know what I mean? No. I mean, that's... And so how do you get, how do you, what do you do if that's where you're at? It's so difficult, and I, I don't have an answer for you, but... Oh, come on! But no, wait, wait. <laughs> Alistair McIntyre said this was what the world we were, we were coming into back in 1982, I think it was, in his book, After Virtue. After he was virtue. not a Christian mm. then. He was a Marxist, but he called it. He said that after we... After Virtue? Yeah, After Virtue. Uh, it's a book of moral philosophy. He said that in the West... We have gotten to the point where everything is fragmented, and we can't. We don't share moral assumptions anymore. Mm. He said the Enlightenment yep. tried to build a moral order based on reason alone, and it failed. And yep. so now we're just living in the shards of this. And he said this is why arguments never get anywhere, because they all ultimately become about what he called emotivism, the idea that truth is what I feel it is. Yes, yes. So a lot of us, especially if you come out of a conservative tradition, think if we build... Premise, 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 conclusion. There, see, you're wrong. <laughs> yes, right, right. right. <laughs> but I think this is going to have an enormous um, impact on evangelism. Yeah. Yes. Uh, because uh, Pope Benedict XVI said something really interesting uh, before he became Pope. He said that the best arguments the church has for itself are not propositional arguments, but the art it produces and the saints it produces. In other words, to uh, to make holiness incarnate either in beauty, like beautiful cathedrals, beautiful music, or in the lives of holy men and women. Yeah. Because that's the thing that breaks through the people who have closed their mind to argument. But when you're confronted with radical beauty and, uh, that, and that is built to the glory of God, or a, a radically holy man or woman, it goes right past your your intellect into right. your heart, and that opens your mind up to the propositions. When I read that, I realized that's how I became a Christian. Yep. Hmm. You know, it was going, my mom won a trip. When I was 17 years old, 1984, my mother uh, won a trip in a church raffle, a trip for uh -huh. to Europe. Okay, yeah. And she didn't want to go, but she knew I was 17, loved Hemingway, wanted to go to the art museums yeah. of Paris. So she sent me. I was the only young person on this bus full of elderly American tourists. <laughs> <laughs> I could not wait to get to Paris and to see all the art museums. On the way there, we stopped an hour outside the city to look at this old church. I'm like, oh, man, another old church. I was no kind of Christian then. Oh, wow. I walk in, and I was. It's just a cathedral at Chartres. Have you ever been yeah. there? No, I haven't. But you know I, know, I know the one. It's the, the considered. I didn't know this at the time. I mean, I was raised in a small town in America yeah. in the late 20th century. This is considered one of the greatest treasures yeah. of Western civilization. Yeah. Built in uh, that. It's uh, a famous. If you see the front of it, you've seen it before. You've like seen it's, it. It's before. one of the most famous right. cathedrals. Medieval Gothic cathedral. I stood there marveling all around me at the glory of God manifest in the stones and the glass and I wanted to know so deeply who is the God that inspired these men oh. whose names we don't even know wow. inspired them to build this temple to his yeah. glory and I knew standing there that God was real and he wanted me huh. I didn't walk out of there wow. a Christian but I walked out of there on a search wow. I could not unsee what I had seen wow. and uh, it ended about six or seven years later, here in Baton Rouge, just up the street from where we're sitting right now, I was a reporter at the at the local newspaper. I had um, I had been drawn to Christianity, but to be perfectly honest, the one thing that made me not want to 
commit to Christ was I didn't want to lose sexual freedom. Yeah. Now, I didn't make much use of it, to be honest, but it was the principle of the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Doggone it, I believe in this. So my newspaper sent me to interview this elderly Catholic priest who was living in an assisted living facility about half a mile up the road from where we're sitting now, okay. Monsignor Sanchez. And they sent me to interview him because he had been an artist and a scholar of the arts in the 1930s uh, when he had a radical conversion to Catholic, a reconversion to the Catholicism in which he was raised and committed his life to Christ as a priest. And they wanted me just to talk to him about art. So I went to see this old man. He was in his 90s. He'd been born in the 1890s. He wow. was so old. And he was like a little Yoda, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. But this man, he had the peace that passes all understanding. He was, his face was glowing. Yeah. So gentle. He sat down and told me his life story about how his parents had sent him to college at Yale. And uh, in the early 1900s, he had lost his faith but didn't dare tell them. He went back down there when his father was dying. And he had a, 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 a mystical experience where he heard the voice of the Lord say, I have always loved you. And he gave his life to Christ. Sitting there watching this little old man yeah. weeping, talking about this thing that had happened 50 or 60 years earlier wow. as if it had happened last week. Uh -huh. yeah. I knew I was sitting in the presence of somebody who was holy. And I said, Lord, I can't deny you anymore. So I, Pope Benedict's argument for beauty and holiness as uh, precursors to opening your heart and your, to the arguments that happened to me. Yeah, and yeah. I think all of us, whatever our Christian tradition is, this is probably going to be the way that we're going to have to reach out to people in this post-rational world. So, um, uh, first off, it's an odd experience as a Protestant listening to an EO guy quote the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, secondly... I contain yeah. multitudes. <laughs> uh, you know, Knox brought up the question earlier. Uh, you know, it seems like it's difficult to even you know uh, talk to people arguments don't really work anymore um, even story I mean story works I would say better than arguments right now but it, that's because it's, it's maybe more of an emotional appeal um, kind of argument um, now it, it seems to me that ultimately the root of our problems is our pews are dead um, we need reformation and revival um, in the church. Well, I don't know about that, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Using very Protestant language. I know you are, um, but we do need revival. I agree. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and, and so it seems to me um, is that the, uh, the, the foundation of all this is that the church has kind of left Jesus. You know, the church has abandoned truth. The church has abandoned the scriptures, the, you know, and, and cultures an outflow of what happens in the church. Church leads society. Mm -hmm. Church is a city on a hill. You can't have culture without cult. You, you can't have exactly. exactly without worship, without true worship. Uh, by cult, of course, I mean yeah, worship. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. No, we, we follow you. Not Christ Church. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> because we all believe differently. Here. Um, and so that, that, to me, seems like that's kind of the root of our, our, our problem is... The church has abandoned God, therefore America has abandoned God. You know, it starts in the the way I see it, it starts in the church first. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that I learned from talking to these folks in the former communist countries, these dissidents, is if you're going to make it through that kind of persecution and even torture, God has to be real to you. 
because if God is just there to give you psychological comfort, right. or, you know, it ain't gonna gonna last. There's a story I tell in the book. You gonna tell the cigarette story? What's that? You gonna tell the cigarette story? Yeah, I will tell the cigarette story. <laughs> Good. Oh, man, go story go. Time. I'm just I, gonna I, eat was gonna, I was gonna talk oh. about this guy, Alexander Ogorodnikov. Okay. Um, I met this man in Russia, Alexander Ogorodnikov. He's about seventy now, but. Uh, he spent years, he was one of the last Christian dissidents left in, in prison. He, um, he was from a prominent communist family. In fact, he was on a cover, the cover boy of the communist youth newspaper back wow. in the day. Wow. But he found Christ in his early 20s and uh, was baptized. And he began to hold meetings in his apartment in Moscow of Christians, bringing them together to praise God, to pray together, to study scripture. And, of course, the KGB came after him. Eventually, they put him in prison in the late 70s. And even though he didn't have a death sentence, because he came from such a prominent communist family, they decided to make an example of him. They put him on death row with some of the worst prisoners in all of Russia, mm. the hardest men. He goes into the prison, and uh, he starts to uh, evangelize them. And uh, I forget exactly the details. He said something about... You know, uh, my God loves you, and he'll provide for you. And didn't some of them say that they wanted, said, well, you know, uh, we want cigarettes or something. Yeah, we, don't said, we don't believe in your God. And, but, and then, like, mocking him, if, you, if God was real, yeah. he'd give us cigarettes. He'd give us cigarettes. <laughs> and, and he said, well, I don't believe God wants you to smoke, but I believe he wants you for himself so, bad, so badly he will help you. So he began to, they began to pray. Praying for cigarettes. Yeah. Wow. A few minutes later, the guard opens the window, throws in a bunch of cigarettes. All those men are like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. A lot of them converted. That's so good. Right. But Okorodnikov began to witness so many people right. there, and people came to the Lord yeah. that the, the prison warden said, we got to get this guy out of there. They put him in solitary <laughs> confinement where they began to torture him. And, in fact, his face today is paralyzed partially on one side for wow. the beatings he took. His faith began to fail there in that cell. He began to doubt whether the Lord, why the Lord had him there. He was awakened one night by a being. He believes it was an angel. And the angel showed him a vision, an actual vision, of a man, a prisoner, being led to execution by two guards with his hands behind his back. And Ogorodnikov was given to understand that this was one of the men he had witnessed to. Yeah. And he was going to his to have his execution that he had been sentenced to happen, but he was also going to be with the Lord. And eventually, Ogorodnikov realized that all these men he was being shown were going to be with Christ in paradise because he had been in that prison to witness to them. Yeah. And he regained his faith in what God, God's mission for him there, that uh, he was part of the Lord's providence for these men's salvation. And he was telling me, Ogorodnikov, I mean, this was a powerful way to... to illustrate to me why it's important for us to be willing to accept suffering. Mm. This man, Yuri Sipko, a Russian Baptist pastor, a white-haired man, that man, I mean, the, the Russian Baptists were persecuted so horribly, yeah. not only by the government, but also by the Orthodox Church, my own church, I'm sorry to say. All the men in his community were taken away by Stalin to the gulags. The women had to raise them. Hmm. And uh, by now, Yuri is an old man. We stood out on the street corner in Moscow after our interview. The snow started to fall. And he told me, you go back to America and you tell the church that if you're not prepared to suffer and even die for Christ, 
then your faith means nothing. It's mm. going to fall apart under torture. That's right. Yeah. We, we were just at the C, we're at our CREC Presbytery, our denomination's Presbytery, and Virgil, Pastor Virgil, opened up uh, Presbytery with kind of a 30-minute exhortation yeah. on um, fighting. And I, he did he did just a, a really good job just talking about being, being courageous but being prepared to die for the gospel. Yeah, his line was, what do you love so much that you're willing to die for? That's right. Yeah. That was the line. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I think that we in the church today have so much to learn from the black church of the civil rights era. Come on now. Let's go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Calm down. Calm hey, down. I was about to <laughs> shout up in the air. Put some money now. <laughs> no, I think you're right, but, though. And this is something hard for me because I tend to have a tendency to want to, you know, fight. But, but Martin Luther <laughs> King knew that being willing to take that suffering without hating back was the key to their deliverance in yeah. this world, to the deliverance from segregation. Yeah. And I, we're not seeing the Christian church now being willing to take that kind of uh, suffering together for the sake of the truth, but we had better start seeing it. They, the other side, the people who hate Christ, who hate us, they are going to have so much power to bring, bring down upon us. They're going to call us all domestic terrorists before it's over. Yes. But we have got to be able to do as King did and accept their abuse in love, but never, ever, ever breaking. Yeah. Never breaking. And uh, King gave this great uh, sermon. I forget when it was. But he talked about how you can do whatever you're going to do to us, but we're still going to love you yeah. because yeah. of Christ. Mm. And that's a hard thing for me to, yeah. to inculcate into my own heart, yeah. but it has to be there. Well, that's I want right. to say there's two things I kind of want to do. I want to merge a little bit of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King together. And I want to do that because I think what, with, with Malcolm, he understood the importance of independence. Black culture had to be independent of the very culture that it's asking for the rights from. If they weren't, they couldn't build anything yeah. because they had to be sufficient on the people that they're asking the rights from. He's like, you don't have to ask for your rights. They already exist. Right. Like, now he understood that later, but how he wanted to go about getting and operating those rights was a little problematic. That's why I want to bring King in and say, why don't you operate in love? And so I want to say I want to build and suffer. Build and so those two have to go together. If they you're do. Gonna, they do. And self-sufficiency has is so important. Has to, us. to be. One of the things I try to get people to understand about live not by lies is that right now we're in a Kolakovich moment. I mentioned Father Kolakovich earlier when we have the freedom now to build the underground church yes. to set these networks in place so that we can help each other. First of all, in our own churches and families, and then across churches. Um, we, can, we need to do things like start tithing and setting up of funds in our own churches to support men and women who lose their jobs because oh, they yep, will 100%. not burn the pinch of incense to Caesar, yep, right. to woke Caesar. Oh, right. Well, we need to make it easier for them to do the right thing by, by letting them know that their church is going to be behind them and not just with thoughts and prayers. Right. We're going to have money there to right. help them. Right. That's one of the things. I mean, I think one of the things we were talking about on the way up here was how um, and I, I'm not trying to toot our own horn or anything, but just I, I, I'm so grateful for how the Lord has blessed our community with a, a number of steps in this direction where I, I, I think it's just God's kindness. But like um, practically, um, I mean, we already have 
habits of, for example, we've put a heavy emphasis on Christian education for years and years, but we know not everybody can afford Christian education. Yep. So we have a deacon's fund that is for Christian education, and anybody that needs help with re get providing a Christian oh, education for the yeah. kids can apply to that. But I think it it's an easy extension of that to start saying things like, and those who whose jobs are on the line um, because they won't give the pinch of incense to the woke Caesar, um, you know, hey, we are, I mean, we already do that um, yeah. significantly for people who just run into hard times anyways. But I think even more so now. Yep. And I think, you know, again, again, I'm not trying to just use this as the only example, but I think it was striking when Gabe got arrested at, at the psalm sing. And there were probably at that first psalm sing, there were probably like, I don't know, maybe 250, 200, 200, 200 yeah. people there at the psalm sing. Gabe gets arrested. And, um, and of course, he's released later that night. Um, the next, Friday, two nights later. And then, yeah, the next day the pastors all met, and we said, well, obviously we need to do it again. Um, we, we, we're not going to back down. Yeah. And, and so um, we, we announced to the church, hey, you don't have to do this. It's totally voluntary, but we're going to be down at the city hall again doing another psalm sing. Civil and you could get arrested again. <laughs> and it, it could happen yeah. again. Yeah. And, um, and we had, I mean, it was so encouraging, but we had probably – 500, Five four or 500 came out. People came all time, over from all over Idaho. But, but mostly our church. Yeah. And, you know, and there were like moms on Facebook, like the our ladies group, you know, from our church. And they're like, hey, if I get arrested, will you take my kids? Sure. And if you get arrested, <laughs> you will you That's take it. my kids? That's what we're talking but, about. But it was, that is what I'm talking about. But it's about. that kind of thing where, like, we're, you have to figure out ways, though. I think back to the point about the um, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Malcolm X thing is like you have to figure out ways to start pushing back now. Yes, yes. Like flex these muscles now. And, and That's I think right. you're right about it starting in the family. Um, I think it's another one of those things where um, I was I was telling the guys on the drive down here that um, uh, you know somebody's called the, the church office not too long ago asking about um, you know thinking about moving to Moscow and and like have you guys been having a lot of internal fighting about the vaccines. Uh, and, and I was like, no, we don't have any fights about that. And they were like, really? Well, why not? And, and I said, well, because for decades, um, Pastor Doug has said that healthcare, medicine decisions are under the government of the family. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Not the civil. And, and so we all have been taught for decades that it's none of your business what another individual family decides to do for the health care of their family. You know, unless, unless the Bible speaks directly to it, like abortion or, or euthanasia or something like that, it's under the government of the family. And so this all comes down, and everybody's like, what? It's none of your business. Yeah. I mean, right. people are free yeah. to choose what they think is best. Well, and that's my stance. I'm vaccinated, so is my family, but I will defend the right of people who do not want to be vaccinated. Right. Hey, brother, right. can I just say thank you? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean that, man. There's so many people out there that... Uh, I think Hunter Baker is another person who I think he's vaccinated too, and he's like, yeah, I'll defend. But other people haven't been saying that who have been vaccinated. And I'm like, give my mom, she's vaccinated. She needs to be. She's a person who's at risk, and she made a decision. As am I. I have a you compromised know, immune system. Yeah, my, she does too. We had cancer and a couple of strokes, and so it's important for her to be a little concerned about the waning ability of this right now. But, <laughs> um, but she's vaccinated. But the thing about it is like she made that decision that was good for her to make right. she has a better chance now because of that but that doesn't that's not the same for everybody and no one who is vaccinated is really stand up saying brother let these people make their own decision don't right. force them to do something that they don't want to do this goes back to your point about malcolm x saying we right. need to be self-sufficient we, like we, we need to like, I mean, that begins by taking responsibility for ourselves and for our decisions yeah so i just appreciate and, hearing well, that, we, we have to be we have to prepare ourselves to be hated now I can remember back when I was in LSU in college, there was this, they, these twin brothers 
who were uh, evangelists. They were students, and they were student evangelists, and they were so obnoxious, and they thought the fact that people hated them meant that they were holy. Well, no, right. just because you're, <laughs> yeah. you're a jerk doesn't mean you're holy. On the other hand, if you're not prepared to be hated for Christ's sake, right. yeah. you're not going to make it through what's yeah, coming. That's right. And that's something that I try to prepare my kids for. Yeah. I'm like, you know, you're in a Christian school now. Everybody believes more or less the same things. It ain't going to be that way when you go out into the world. No. Right. Yeah. And I have had to take some hits myself. I do all the time because of the things I write. But that's okay because I know who my Savior is. Amen. Amen. But... You know, I'm. It's easy for me to say that too because I work for a conservative magazine. Right. I write books right. that are successful. It's right. hard for them to cancel me. Not the case for my children. I want my children to know that it is better to be poor and faithful mm. than successful and sold right. out. Amen. 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 Yeah. Amen. I have a friend. I think. Oh, go, oh, go ahead. I, I, I think kind of my mission. I feel like in the next 20 years, 40 years, as God gives it to me, is to create space for my kids. To live freely, yeah. to raise their families, to buy houses in our community. You know, I feel like that's that's my focus. You know, we got we're in Idaho, so but we're in a liberal. We're in the there's two counties in Idaho that vote liberal, and we're in one of them. Uh, aren't you guys overrun by Sasquatch? Because I hate a Sasquatch. Yeah, I'll be, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I'll be honest with you. <laughs> the, he's around there in <laughs> East Northern Washington. He's, um, a, he's a heretic. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we, we might agree. <laughs> But that's kind of where I think, okay, if I can move this needle, if I can create space for my kids in the next 40 years, then I feel like I left my kids a better place. Now, that space includes them learning how to fight and engage culture. That space includes them being thinking Christians, uh, courageous Christians. You know, so it includes all those things. We got we sent our kids to an ACCS school in, in town. Um, but it necessitates that we're being courageous in such a way where our kids, it's just part of the water they drink. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a book that when I moved back to Louisiana in 2011, you know, I'm from here and I spent most of my, my adult life and career away from this state, but I came back after my younger sister died of cancer. And she stayed in our hometown, taught in the local school, lived a very quiet life, married her high school sweetheart. I was able to see as she was dying of cancer, we were living in Philadelphia, but we're a close family, so I was able to follow it closely. I was able to see the profound value of a small town life, yeah. right? And I had people come up to me at her funeral because uh, she was a beloved teacher. I mean, the line at her wake went down the block and around the corner. Wow. I had people coming up to me and saying, sir, you don't know me, but she taught me, and this is what she did for me. And it, it, I wrote a book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming. Her name is Ruthie Lemming. And it, just the experience of her life and her service and yeah. her death, the way the whole town came around her to carry her through this 19 months of cancer, it really showed me what can be done in a small town. Yeah. And, and how people like me, I, I'm not, I didn't do the wrong thing. I did, I've done well. God has been good to me. I did well in New York and Washington yeah. and Dallas. But Ruthie lived a life in this small town, a uh, life of real moral and spiritual oh, greatness. Yeah, and we can is, do it good. anywhere. What, what is it? G.K. Chesterton says that the most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man and an ordinary woman and their ordinary kids. There you go. Yeah, that's There you go. You know, yeah. as you, um, I know you got to run too, but I just want to know, as you're looking at the landscape right now, 
how are you? I kind of want to know, like, what's your 10-year plan, your five-year plan? <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of one of the other is other thing is, how are you deciding to move the Overton window so that either the next generation or this next group can go be able to? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's such a good question. Well, I, I don't have a five- or ten-year plan. I'm just trying to get my kids into college. But, <laughs> um, but I am no kidding. I, I'm, I'm planning to go back to Hungary in, at the end of January. I'd spent three and a half months there this past summer and there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in Hungary mm. under the yeah, government the president Victor Orban Calvin, the prime minister there's a Calvinist president yeah. he's a Calvinist Protestant <laughs> he is he is but but he knows because Calvinists are a minority in Hungary yeah you know he's having to make these alliances wherever he can because he knows uh, everybody's walking from the camera yeah. <laughs> it's, it's cool. all right no it's all right but, um, <laughs> you're all good but um you know, Victor Orban knows that people who are serious, who are conservative on their morals and, and their spiritual lives, we have to stick together. We right. have yeah. to find some way to work together. Right. But uh, when I was over there, I had a great time, and I'm thinking of going back over there because they, uh, this think tank I was working for would like me to travel around Europe, Western Europe and the former Eastern Europe, building a network of Christian intellectuals hmm. um, and for what I consider to be the resistance. This is the amazing thing. I don't know if you guys have been to Europe recently or not, but I was in I, Ukraine a couple years ago. When I, I my book, uh, the Benedict Option, came out in America in 2017. It's in 12 languages over there now, and uh, it, it and this book, Live Not by Lies, is also in 11 languages, and uh, it gave me an introduction to a lot of these countries. Well, when I go to Europe, my audiences are Christians around age 40 and younger. Because if you're that age and you're still going to church, it's because you really believe. Yeah, you care. Wow. Three, three yeah. generations or more of dechristianization has wow. sifted it. Yeah. And, um, and so when I go over there, you don't have to convince people, Christians there who are still going to church, right. of the per the reality of persecution and what's coming. Right. They get it, and they want to they know have graveyards. how to They have graveyards. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we survive this? Right. Here in America, there's still so many American Christians who are like, eh, yeah, it's trouble now, but it's going to pass. Everything going to be okay. It can't happen here. Right. Solzhenitsyn said in the preface to the 1983 edition of the Gulag Archipelago, said there are people around the world who say it can never happen here what happened in russia don't be fooled what yeah. happened in russia could happen anywhere in yeah. this earth under yeah. the right circumstances yeah. well the christians in europe the ones who are still devout they see what's coming yeah. and there's something to build on there i think it's going to take 10 more years in america for american christians to see what european believers are seeing wow. right now wow. so you're leaving us is what you're saying no for a short time but i i the book i'm i'm getting ready to work on is going to be about how to rediscover a sense of god's presence among us because uh, that's something that the more I've been reading about the weird phenomena, have you heard about this? No. Capital W-E-I-R-D, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. This is the Western Ooh. world. And uh, wow. psychologically, yeah. we in the Western world are so different from the rest of humanity. Wow. And one of the ways we differ is we're so secularized, even in the way we see things. So what I'm going to try to do is to figure out how we can all cultivate as believers a more vigorous sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. This is not a political book, but it's one I think that's going to fit with this, because if you don't believe that, that God is real and that Christ rose from the dead for our salvation, you're not going to make it. 
And I want to help people. Yeah. You know, I've tried to help them in Benedict Option, Live Not By Lies, to understand what the, the condition we're dealing with. Yeah. But uh, when I look at the at the polls and the the studies of my kids' generation and how they're just falling like flies away from the faith, yep. I want to figure out how to help them. You 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 just summarized Reformation revival there. By the way, <laughs> just, well, we'll work on we the got, we got, we got on camera right here. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, it, it strikes me that um, a big part of what you're talking about in terms of resistance um, and so on, you you touch on in your book in terms of the centrality of you talk about small groups actually yeah. and and a kind of recovery you know you you mentioned um uh well, well just the the importance though of um of starting with family loyalty and then kind of building out from that and you tell a lot of stories about this yeah. one family in particular with those five or six kids and and how they saw um, their parents' faithfulness, yeah. how, how loyal they were to their parents because they saw how faithful their parents were, particularly the, the dad. About yeah, Václav Ben, they saw that their dad was willing to go to prison yeah. before and, and, accepting the and lie. Then, and then was it the same um, Was it the same woman, the wife, who, w w where the husband was offered uh, freedom if he would only compromise yep. and leave the country? And she said, she wrote him a letter in prison and said, you better not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That woman, she's so tough. Yeah. You know, and she said that because she said we cannot abandon all these people who are depending on us. Yeah. And, um, you know, because they, they had been offered by the government, you know, if you'll just, you can leave with your family, if you'll just recant or something to that. And she said, ah, no, we're not doing that. Uh, yeah, and the thing to just wow. underline that you underline in the book, which is that um, you have an opportunity to hand something far more valuable yeah. than cars and houses and a job. That's right. Something far more valuable. You can hand that to your kids by your example. That's by right. your example. By your faithfulness, by your unflinching willingness to not, not compromise, to stand for the truth, not tell lies. And when the, the mockery comes or when you lose your job or whatever, like don't think of that as defeat. That's, that's, no. actually, that's actually when you're that's suffering. A great victory. When you're suffering right. for the gospel, I mean, this is why again, like when you got arrested, I brought, I came home to my kids, and they said, "Wow, way to go, Mr. Gabe!" <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah. it was, it was, and they're gonna. We were talking about this in the car. They're gonna remember this. That's right. They're yeah. gonna remember COVID. That's right. They're gonna remember the arrest. They're gonna remember. You know, we've been following the Canadian pastors that yeah, keep getting arrested right. and yeah. fined for having yeah. church. Mm -hmm. um, like that, you're giving. Like those pastors are winning. Their, their yeah. congregations and their kids, as hard as it is, they're giving something to those people. They're yeah. giving them the gift of courage yeah. and faith and yeah. joy in suffering. And that's what wins. You mentioned joy. That is, and maybe that's something we can end on. Yeah. That has to be at the center of things. Amen. Because yeah. if we don't ultimately manifest joy to our families and to mm. the world, right. then we're sunk. Right. You know, and. Right. I, I tell a story in Live Not By Lives at the very end about this photographer I met in Bratislava, Timo Krishka. Um, I met him when I was over there doing investigations. His grandfather, I believe it was, a priest, uh, a Greek Catholic priest. And those priests can marry. Okay. Uh, his, the, the, the communist government tried to force his grandfather to become Orthodox because they could control the Orthodox Church okay. under communism. But his grandfather wouldn't do it, so they forced him out of the priesthood. And uh, Timo wanted to honor his grandfather's memory by going to interview all the Christians he could find who had suffered as prisoners, political prisoners under communism. 
And most of these people, they're very old. They were poor because they lost much. And Timo said, Timo's really successful as a photographer and a filmmaker. He was a toddler when communism ended. He had everything his parents didn't have. He had money. He had the freedom to travel, etc. But he went to visit these old people who are a lot of them living in poverty today. And he said the joy in Christ that they had yeah. was palpable. Right. Yep. And it converted him. It made him, I mean, he was a Christian already, but he said it made him realize how his, the anxiety he had from trying to get rich and get ahead in the world mm. and all that, it was worthless. Only Christ. These, these men and these women had everything taken from them but Christ, yeah. and yet they prevailed. Right. And that is what, an, what a, a story for us. And they yeah. were joyful. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. And that's Amen. the story. I mean, you read, you read about all the martyrs. I mean, like that's the, that's the thing you hear over and over again as you read the stories of, of those who gave everything, lost everything, and, and they, you know, you, you know, Corey Tin Boom or, you know, yeah. like these, these, these faithful people who lose everything. And if they say, I, but I had Christ. I, I, I had Christ. And, like, and the joy they have is, um, is so winsome. Okay, but, Toby, how, how, many, how often are the martyrs talked about in our churches today? Not only the martyrs of the church history, but martyrs like the, the uh, I think there were 22 or 24 Egyptian men yeah. who were beheaded by yeah. ISIS on the Libyan beach. I, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. Right? Yes. Yeah. Do we talk about them oh, in the church, man. talk about them as heroes? Right. Well, we... I try to, but we, no, I'm not, I'm not asking about <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we, but we need American two, but we need two more, absolutely. Yeah. Because, and and the thing that it, people don't understand, but it's it's it seems like oftentimes we, we do a weird dichotomy, where we say either you're into martyrs and therefore you're into losing, <laughs> you're into suffering, so you're into losing, right. or else yeah. no, I'm into winning, and, and so I don't want to martyr. talk about yeah. the martyrdom. Not losing. But you do not understand the Christian faith. Right. If you right. do not understand that, you don't understand that when you're obedient to Christ and you suffer and or even die for it, yeah. that is the path to victory. And so, it's not like, that's not just spiritual victory in the by and by. No. Of course, heaven. Of course, the glory of, of, of heaven. But no, that's actually the way the gospel triumphs in history. That's right. Right. Is, yeah. is through people who did not love their lives. Um, uh, you know, so dearly that they were not willing to lay them but down. But what is That's the right. gospel itself but Christ yeah. dying right. 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 and then raising and from the dead? Conquering sin and death. And I think our biggest problem with this isn't that the martyr stories sound cool, but I don't think we believe in resurrection. Yeah. We don't believe that God actually uses death and from death brings resurrection. If we did, then we wouldn't have a problem laying down right. our lives right. in a lot right. of ways. Well, Pastor Richard Vermbrand, the uh, Lutheran, Romanian yes. Lutheran pastor, he said that... Um, a lot of people who, claim, who think they follow Christ are really just admirers of Christ. Yeah. But Christ mm. didn't call admirers. He called disciples. Yeah. That's right. And you can only tell the difference between an admirer and a disciple when it comes time to suffer. Mm. That's and right. we That's in right. the American church are, are in a season of suffering now. I believe we may not live to see it today, but our kids may or our grandkids yeah. will see the victory of that. Yeah. But before yeah. the, the sunrise, we're going to have to go through a dark night, and we have to do it faithfully. Yeah. Amen. And there's joy there. And that's the Absolutely. thing. It's like if Christ is there, um, there there's, a, there's a story. Um, 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 uh, Darlene Dibbler Rose um, was an uh, uh, evangelical Protestant missionary um, right before World War II over in the South Pacific, got married, went over like newlyweds. Um, almost immediately, they, they were evacuating. Her and her husband decided not to evacuate when the Japanese were invading down there, um, got taken into concentration camps and separated. And... Um, 
and uh, she, uh, her husband died, was, died in the concentration camp. It's a beautiful story. Um, uh, I think it's called um, Evidence of Things Unseen is what it's called. And at, at the end, one of, the, one of the most beautiful lines in the whole book was she actually got a letter from one of the co-prisoners um, uh, uh, that her husband had written before he died. And in it, he expressed regret. I wish I had I'd gone home. I wish we'd gone home. And, uh, and, and she, she um, right there, as she's reading it, she, she wrote she, in the book, she says, and I, I, through, through tears, I prayed to God um, and told God, um, no, I would not have gone back because I would not want to be anywhere that Christ wasn't. Wow. And, and, and so mm. she, so she, and the story is horrific of her suffering in the, in the concentration camps and all the, you know, the women that are dying and all the rest of it. And, but she knew that Christ was there. Yeah. And if Christ was there, she wouldn't, she wouldn't be anywhere else. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Amen. You know, I, a few years ago, I was in Paris on the book tour for the Benedict Option in yeah. French. Yeah. And I had a coffee with one of the top French intellectuals. I'm, I'm not going to mention his name, but um, he's somebody on TV all the time in France. He was a 68er. You know, he was part of the revolution in 1968, the Cultural Revolution, but he's become very bitter about it because he sees that France is falling apart. But he is not any kind of religious believer. So we had coffee because he was interested in my ideas, and, and we talked about the things we shared, about how much we worry about Western civilization, about Islam and France, etc. And finally I said to him, Professor, where do you find hope? He looked at me and said, I have no hope. And he was not being dramatic. He just right. said, I have no hope. Just I, said, honest. Yeah. I said, well, I do have hope, and my hope is in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, Professor, I'm not saying that like a TV evangelist being all shallow. Uh, and I went on to tell him that I, I believe that things are going to get bad before they get better. But hope is not the same thing as optimism. An optimist believes that everything is always going to get better. Hmm. But a, for a Christian, hope is that even if things get worse, as long as we stay united to Christ and unite our suffering to our Lord, that the Lord will use that in some way to rebuild his church. Amen. I told him, Professor, that is my hope. And he looked at me and said, well, that's good for you Americans, but here in France, we don't believe in God. <laughs> End of story. Yeah. And I thought, that is really wow. sad. But help me realize so this is what we have to build on yep. we have to inculcate that in our and ourselves our families and our friends because right. if you lose that hope you'll end up like this poor professor who's yep. i would not be surprised to open the paper one morning and see that he's killed himself yeah right mm. right need a yeah. lot more of that shadrach meshach and what i call a bad negro <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I, last point you thank got you it for, man. thank you for bringing him up yeah. people talk about the benedict option and they're so stupid they say that like well you're saying that we ought to all run for the hills I'm like, no i'm not <laughs> saying that i'm saying though that if we are we're living somewhere between jeremiah 29 and and daniel the book of daniel shadrach meshach and abednego we are living as Christians in a kind of Babylonian exile. Yeah. The Lord has called us here for whatever purpose now. Right. And we have to plant ourselves here and pray for the peace of the city, take yep. wives, and so forth. But we have to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and realize that you cannot be more embedded in the world of Babylon than to be the king's servants. Right. But when they were called to apostatize, they were prepared to die before selling Amen. God so, out. Amen. So we have to ask ourselves, how did they live in that exile so that even as they were serving the city and serving the king, they never forgot who they were? Right. That's right. That is our challenge right now. Right. Amen. And Christ was with them. Yeah. In Amen. that. Amen. Amen. Yeah.
That's good Rod, work. thanks so much, yeah, man. Really appreciate thank it. you yeah. so much. Thank, thanks for that letting was, us. That was great. Come to your hometown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and thank you for not asking me about the LSU Tigers fall season. <laughs> <laughs> man, I tell you, hey, two, there's some good coaches out there available. <laughs> two years ago, Ed Ozeron could have been the governor of this state. He could have been the king of this state. And now it's just like, yeah. Move on. Yep. Move on. Uh, yep. Yep. I don't watch college anything. I don't, Bless his I'm heart. I'm pro. Oh, Sorry. man. Yep. That's All me. Right. Yeah, man. This All is right. great. Thank All you, guys. Right. Thank you, Rod. Thank you. Welcome to No Quarter November. My name is Douglas Wilson. I'm glad you decided to join us. Now, some people want to know, what is it about November that makes us want to burn things? What's with that? There's a little libation for those evangelicals who think I ought not to be drinking stuff like that. The reason, the reason we're doing this is not that we're, we think that there's a moral obligation that we have to be incendiary, because we don't have a moral obligation to be incendiary. What we're saying is that the world has mysteriously, for some bizarre reason, become flammable. So, the world is flammable. Everything catches fire these days. All you have to do is say something like white babies or, or something like men shouldn't have sex with unstable women. Things that would have gone past without comment in a saner time. But we don't live in a sane time. Um, we're not incendiary people here at Cannon Press. We are ordinary people, normal people, in a flammable time. And that explains why things burn in November. The basic point of No Quarter November on my blog is that normally, 11 months out of the year, when I say outrageous things or things that I know that people will take as outrageous, I make a point of qualifying it. I, I call it, it's not always in the second paragraph, but I call it the second paragraph rule, where I say, now, when I say this, I'm not saying this and that and the other thing. I qualify, and I qualify, and I qualify. And nobody pays the slightest bit of attention to my qualifications. And so I decided a few years ago that let's see what happens when I don't qualify anything. If I just say, if I just speak the truth, what happens then? Well, check in, no quarter November, and you'll see what happens then. My exhortation to all of you is that if it, if it seems like everything's gone nuts, if it seems like the world's on fire, just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Just stay with whatever your plans were. Keep doing what you ought to be doing. Stay at your post. Ignore the world. See? <laughs> well, I gotta get home for dinner.